Today we begin a seven-part series on the uh, first letter of John. Uh, we won't hit every passage in this series, but we will uh, take a look at several important ones. Of course, all of them are important, but John really packs a lot of theology uh, in this letter. And I've entitled uh, this series, Assurance and Encouragement in an Uncertain Age. And uh, we look at the first four verses today. And as I begin to preach this sermon, you're, you're, some of you are going to think, he really is spinning his wheels the first half of this sermon. But I, I'm doing that on purpose because I think it's important to talk about what John is trying to accomplish and where he's coming from as an eyewitness. So just bear with me and be patient, you know, patience is a fruit of the Spirit. And uh, I'll get to uh, the actual uh, text and what the title kind of talks about, life that gives fellowship and joy. So I'll read these words for us, First John, the first chapter, the first four verses. And this is where John says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. You know, whenever we study the Gospel of John, we usually spend a good bit of time on the first 18 verses of that first chapter of John's Gospel, what we refer to as the prologue. You know, that uh, section of his Gospel starts with the words, in, in, the word was the begin, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we spend a lot of time on that prologue because John gives us many of the themes in those first 18 verses to which he will speak in his gospel. Now this is a much shorter text before us today, just four verses, but you need to understand it's also like the prologue of this letter. And the two prologues complement one another. John begins here with the same subject as his gospel, that word of life which was from the beginning. But instead of talking about Jesus' record of life, uh, of his life's work on this earth as he does in the gospel, this text speaks, as one commentator put it, of the revelation of life which culminated in the incarnation and leads up to a view of the position, privileges, and duties of the Christian life. If that's too long for you to remember, it would be for me. As the sermon title summarizes, it speaks to life that gives fellowship and joy. 
But before we get to all of that, we need to make sure we notice what John is doing here in this prologue. Look at verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. Now that's not a royal we there in the text. You know how sometimes you'll hear the Queen of England say, We do thus and so, and she means just herself. This is not a royal we. John is referring to the apostles. They are the ones who heard Jesus' teaching, who experienced everything that he did in his public ministry. And that makes a difference. It did to the original disciples in Acts 1 when they're trying to replace Judas Iscariot. You know, it's after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, Judas has hanged himself and they want to replace him and once again have 12 disciples. Do you remember the criteria we're given in Scripture? One of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went out in and out among us beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection. In other words, the disciples, the, the apostles, they saw all of the public ministry of Jesus from the time he was baptized by John until God removed him from them. In other words, this message of life, this incarnational gift of grace from God himself is, is no invention of men or women like the world's religions are. You know, they're inventions. Somebody, some group of people concocted all of the world's religions, but that's not the way it is with the Christian faith because it's something that God Himself has made known to His creation in the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13.8 tells us Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And John is speaking to this revelation of reality as it has always been and always will be through what we find out in the incarnation of God in His Son, Jesus Christ. John is basically saying here that without the testimony of the apostles, without the testimony of people like himself, we would be left somewhat in the dark. But they've experienced something special. And you know, Jesus backs that up in Matthew 13 when he compares and contrasts his own disciples with the huge crowds that followed him around and listened to him's teaching. For speaking to his disciples, Jesus said, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous men long to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Now many of us know that definition of faith in Hebrews 11 that we mentioned in last week's sermon. Uh, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And that's a great definition of faith, but nowhere does Scripture say that's the only definition of faith. 
You know, faith's not only based just on those things that are not seen. Faith is also based at times on facts. It's based on the facts of eyewitness testimony to which John refers to here when he says, we've seen it and testify to it. It may help you to think about this in terms of, or remember it, in terms of the old hymn, He Lives. That's not in our hymn book, but I know a lot of you grew up in other traditions, and I'm sure you sang that hymn in church. You know, the reason that hymn was written in the first place, it was written by a preacher by the name of Alfred Ackley. And he was an evangelist, and he was the type of evangelist that would hold crusades. And one night after a crusade service, this young man came up to him, and as he was talking with him, he he found out that the young man was a Jewish student. And the Jewish student said to him, Why should I worship a dead Jew? And Ackley said, He's not dead, he lives. And I can prove it by my own experience and by the experience of countless thousands of others. And that's why that hymn was written. That's what gave him the idea for it. And if you remember in that hymn, toward the end of the refrain you sing, He lives, He lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know He lives. He lives within my heart. And there's nothing wrong with those words. I I sing that hymn when I have a chance. But that's not what John is saying in this text. He's saying you and I can know that Jesus lives not just because of our own personal experience, even though that's very important to us, but because of the testimony of the apostles. Those who literally walked with Him and talked with Him along life's narrow way. And we're making a big deal about this apostolic proclamation because that's how the church operates. That's the place from which we draw our way of life. Think about it. In our mission statement, in your bulletin, every Sunday we say that we serve God through worship, education, and fellowship. Well, why do we worship the way we do? Why do we include certain things in the service and not other things? It's because of Scripture. And what do we teach in our educational ministry? Do we teach whatever we want to teach? No, we teach Scripture. And how do we fellowship? What brings us together? It's the same answer. Paul gets at this same idea in 1 Corinthians 11 and also 2 Thessalonians 2 where he says there in 2 Thessalonians, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us either by word of mouth or by letter. These traditions are the doctrinal and moral and liturgical teaching of the apostles that go all the way back to Christ Himself. And if you want to get technical about it, they go all the way back to the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, because a lot of what Jesus teaches is found in the Law and the Prophets. 
This is what John is getting across to you and me in the opening verses of his letter. So that he can have fellowship with his friends, he tells them what he believes about Jesus. As John Piper puts it, there's no significant fellowship among people who do not share the same view of Jesus Christ. Shared doctrine is the basis of Christian fellowship. And we could expand on that a little bit and say, in other words, uh, correct Christology produces correct theology. You know, what we think and believe about Jesus Christ produces a stronger theology. And correct theology makes true fellowship possible. You know, that's why so many of, of these large denominations are splitting today into more conservative groups and more liberal groups. Uh, like the Methodists have been doing, Episcopalians have already done it. You know, they're, they're all, it's because they can't agree on their theology. And that's why we've been able to stay together as ARPs. Yes, we're a small denomination. But we agree on our theology. The Bible is what drives what we do. And in addition to the Bible, we have the Westminster Confession of Faith that informs better what the Bible teaches to us in a systematic way. It should be instructive to you and me that when John wants to establish a deep fellowship with these readers to whom he is writing, what does he do? Does he talk about the weather and politics and the economy? No. He gives them deep theology. This letter is chock full of it. It's the same kind of thing we see the Apostle Paul do with a church with which he has no real connection. I mean, he knows some people there, but that congregation has never seen him, and yet he desires not only fellowship with them, but their support that they might send him on in a missionary endeavor to Spain. So what does he do? He gives them and us the fullest description we have of his theology and what we know as the book of Romans. And John is doing the same thing here by talking about this proclamation of the incarnation. And as we can see from the text, the proclamation was not an end in itself, but its wider purpose is fellowship which leads to joy. Now, if you're a good listener, you may be thinking, Barry, are you saying that Jesus came to earth so we could have fellowship? I thought he came to save the world from their sins. Well, he did. According to Scripture, that's one reason he came. So that we might have everlasting life. John 3.16 But the point is here that salvation is a much broader term than just being saved from our sins. This notion of fellowship and joy is, as John Stott puts it, the meaning of salvation in its widest embrace. 
including reconciliation to God in Christ and incorporation into the life of the church. This fellowship, he says, is the meaning of eternal life. And he can say that because of what Jesus prays in his so-called high priestly prayer there in John 17, verse 3, where Jesus says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And this is why John says what he does in verse 3. That which we've seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with who? With the Father and with Jesus Christ his Son. We can see there that the fellowship we're able to have with one another is possible and only possible Through the fellowship we have first of all with God the Father and Jesus Christ His Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words we have to have this vertical fellowship first with Almighty God before we can have this horizontal fellowship with one another. Now fellowship which is Koinonia in the Greek, I know lots of you have heard that word before. That's a specifically Christian word. Uh, The Greeks weren't really using that word much until the Christians came along and took it for their own use. It has the meaning of something that is shared or common. This is why that word points us toward that common participation in the grace of God that we know in the gift of salvation through the Lord Jesus' work on the cross that we know in the gift of the Holy Spirit and the wisdom and the gifts and all that He does for us in the gift of of the church and how we can come together as the body of Christ. You know, in the church we often water down this word fellowship. You know, I'm sure I've been, uh, I've, I've done that in my time, and, and you probably have too. You know, sometimes we water it down where we think all fellowship is is sitting around enjoying a meal together and talking about who's going to win the Clemson-South Carolina ball game. That is not what fellowship is. And fellowship is not just about hobbies or, or self-interest or, you know, we, we like these people and so we spend time with them. But fellowship with our Father and with one another in and through Jesus Christ is what we might term real fellowship and that alone fulfills the purpose of our life as fellowship, the purpose that Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 when he tells us that we need to live so as to be sons of our Father who's in heaven. And yes, ladies, that includes you too. Because that term sons means you're an heir. You know, we have an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, as Peter puts it in his letter. In other words, we are to live like one of those heirs, just like a child of God. 
This is what John hopes for his readers who are so dear to him. This is also why we hear his strange words there in verse 4. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Don't you want him to say your joy? That's not what he says. He says that our joy may be complete. We have to remember what he calls these readers all throughout this letter starting with chapter 2 verse 1 when he says, My little children, I'm writing to you. Nine times he calls them little children. Other times he just refers to them as children. He's their spiritual father. And so his joy will be full when they live in obedience to God, which means in this particular context that they're following and living with the testimony and teaching of the apostles as opposed to the false teachers in their midst. As parents, many of us experience that same joy, knowing that our children are serving the Lord wherever they're found. And we pray for them to do just that. And we pray for our grandchildren, if we have any grandchildren, that they will do the same, serve the Lord. We understand that type of joy that uh, John is speaking of here. It's this gift of eternal life from this word of life that produces fellowship and joy. As David puts it in Psalm 19, he says the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. He's talking about the Word of God. The Word of God rejoices our heart. Then Paul comes along in Philippians 4 and goes a step further. And he says we're to rejoice not in the Word, but in what? Rejoice always in the Lord. And so we find this joy in the Word of God. We find greater joy in the Lord Jesus Christ because the joy of the Lord is our strength. And you know, we can see that truth all through church history. I want you to hear these words that a man wrote to his friend right before his death in the third century. He said, it's a bad world but I have discovered in the midst of it a quiet and holy people who have learned a great secret. They have found a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of our sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not because they have overcome the world. These people are the Christians. And I am one of them. Jesus said, you have sorrow now, but I will see you and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. This is why Jesus tells you and me that in the world we have tribulation, but we can be of good cheer in the midst of of that world full of tribulation because he has overcome the world. That's why Paul tells us, you and me, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's the good news of the gospel. Believe it and live in its peace.
Amen.